Amen. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, that was a very appropriate prayer. Um, you'll see in a moment why, and we did not coordinate it. So I want to begin with a question, as I often do. Um, this is an important question. How many times, if you were to guess or you were to count, have you been ashamed to speak of the gospel? How many times have you cared more what someone will think or how they might respond to you than you care about the Savior who laid down his life for you? Now, I'm ashamed to say I don't know that number because it's too high. So, our text this morning, Paul includes to Timothy, and we all need to hear because like Timothy, our hearts are weak. Like Timothy, we struggle with fear of man. And uh, like Timothy, we are dwelling in an age where the culture, as Jesse said, hates Christ and is more and more looking like the day of Paul. When Paul would walk the streets of Ephesus, there would be temples to all these gods. All these gods are marked by sexual perversion and all kind of hedonistic self-fulfillment. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore. Um, but so as we think about what we have in the gospel, uh, we're going to spend the next couple weeks looking at it. But I want us to consider our day and how we view the gospel. Because as Jesse said, if the events of the last week are any indication, an unstable woman executes a calculated mass murder in a Christian school. And the commentators and pundits in our culture, many of them had vile things to say about Christians. One of them said, well, I guess those Christians didn't pray enough, did they? Oh, every, almost every major news outlet cared more about hiding this woman's trans identity than they did about sympathy for a Christian. Now, if you think, all right, maybe you're blowing that out of proportion a little bit, consider the reverse. What if someone who called himself a Christian kills someone who call, some woman who calls herself a man? What would that headline be? What would that reaction be? The world loves to rally around its own and will quickly get past whatever happens to, to Christians. And essentially what has happened is that many end up defending a murderer to fit the mob agenda. Has this happened anywhere else in history? Some, I think this, this happened around this, this time a couple thousand years ago. The world will choose a murderer over the true and living God. But that's not the point. I don't want to get into the news of it all. But we all know how horrific it is. But what about those who were in the thick of it? What about those who were hurted and, and, and harmed by this? How did the church respond? Jesse earlier prayed for Covenant Presbyterian Church and School. How did they respond? Quote from their statement, Together we trust in the power of Christ to draw near and give us the comfort and hope we desperately need. How did the father, the pastor who lost his nine-year-old daughter 
respond. He says, and I quote, through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. How did the pastor of the Baptist church down the street, who when they found out that there's someone shooting up the the, the Presbyterian church, open up their doors so teachers and students could flee. They give them food and water and 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 they pray with them. And the lead pastor of that church, when he thought about what would he preach today, Palm Sunday, here's what he says. The message of the hope of the resurrection. I don't know if it's ever been more needed or more welcomed. Amen. That is the hope of our brothers and sisters. It does not matter the name on the building. Jesse's was absolutely right. If your hope is in Christ, that is real hope. Because that is the only hope that, that through tears you can still praise God after your daughter is murdered. That through tears you can still praise God when those you loved are slaughtered. And the world, to the world, the cross is foolish. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it is our life. And when all else is stripped away, that is our hope and that is what we cling to. And so that is what we're going to focus on the next couple weeks um, as we lead into Resurrection Sunday. But newsflash, you're at Grace Fellowship. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Um, so uh, this passage, we're going to cover verses. Here's, what we're gonna, here's the plan. We're going to cover verses 8 through 14 as a unit. Uh, and because there is so much here today, we're going to focus on Paul's structure, the exhortation he's going to give to the church. And um, because there's so much meat in verses 9 and 10, we're going to save that for next week, and we're really going to uh, lean into um, what, not just that the resurrection happened, but the plan of God and what we received in the resurrection. So our text this morning begins and ends with two commands. So we're going to lean into those commands. Um, What Paul tells Timothy to know and to do. But everything else has so much support. I'm going to use a very technical term for this. It is pregnant with support. What does that mean? It, it is a literary term, meaning it is so full, it looks like it's about to burst. This text does so much to support these, these commands, and we do this often here. Because if you just read the scriptures for the commands and you skip the indicative that lead us to the imperative, if you skip the, the, the support for what God asks us to do, sometimes these commands feel heavy and they feel impossible. But when you remember the God who gives them and who directs them, they are certainly feasible and doable and enjoyable. So uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. I'm going to read through verse 14. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed." 
For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you. You are a praiseworthy and awesome God. Not just because you love us and you do. Even if you never set your love on us, you deserve all glory, laud, and honor. We do pray for your church this morning across the globe, faithful ministers of the gospel, faithful servants of the cross. Even if the world, our news, Social media never recognizes our witness. May we be faithful to say, my hope is in Jesus Christ. He is my comfort. He is my strength. He is my song. May everything we say and do in this time together as the gathered church and as the church is scattered throughout the week, may we be ambassadors of this good news. May we testify of our Lord and Savior. May we give the people who we come into contact a reason for the hope that is within us because there is no other hope. And we praise you for your spirit that enables us, equips us, and guards us as we do this. That we know we are always in your hand and we are always directed by your power. And we want to do all to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 8, we're picking up with the therefore. And the therefore always points to something that is previous. So looking back at the last verse, verse 7. Uh, remember last week, Paul was encouraging Timothy with the faith that he has, the faith that came from his mother and his grandmother, the faith that was implanted in him, the the spark of God that he is to fan into flame. And the last thing he says is, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, Timothy, since you have this spirit, since you have the spirit of power, of love and self-control, since you've been given this by God, since this is true, then here's your command. Do not be ashamed. That do not be ashamed means nothing without the spirit of love and power and self-control. But since you have it, you have no reason to fear. You have no reason to shrink back. Paul's telling Timothy, look at your faith. Remember who you are. Remember what has been given to you. Don't be ashamed. Yet this is Timothy's tendency. Because this is our tendency. How often do we need to be reminded? As I asked earlier, how often are we ashamed? How often do we fear? How often are we given? Anyone ever get that like, that like slow pitch over the middle of the plate, someone just begging you to tell them about Jesus? And you're like, yeah, I'm going to step out of the batter's box. I got lunch to go to. Or, man, I don't really feel like doing this right now. And you walk away and you're like, man, I just, I could I just missed completely. 
Don't be ashamed. He tells them, don't be ashamed of what? Of the testimony about our Lord. Paul uses four different terms, and these are synonymous within our text. The testimony about our Lord, the gospel, the the pattern of sound words, and the good deposit. All these things are used interchangeably because it is the testimony about our Lord that is the gospel. It is the pattern of sound words that Paul taught Timothy. That is the good deposit that was entrusted to Paul and now to Timothy and now to us. Don't be ashamed of that. And don't be ashamed of me. Because we should not be ashamed of Christ or those who labor with with Christ. Why? Because he is on the winning side. And in Christ, we are on the winning side. And those who labor with him, we should love and encourage and support. But it's easy. It's like, man, Paul's in prison. That's a lot more comfortable out here. No one would ever know if I just didn't speak up for Paul. That's why Paul is encouraging Timothy. And like timid Timothy, we need the encouragement too. And so why does Paul say this? Because every one of us sitting here this morning knows our own hearts. We know that it is so much easier to people please. It is so much easier to say what is comfortable and easy so that we can go on about our day and no one will trouble us. But here's the thing. The gospel has always cost something. Always. Jesus told us this in Mark chapter 8. He used the same phrase in the same way, connecting these ideas of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ and not being ashamed. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, here's what Jesus said to his disciples. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny. Leave behind the old man. For whatever, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what can a man give in return for his soul? And now here's the clincher. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Because he's coming. And when he comes, he is coming in the glory of his Father. And he is coming with his holy angels with flaming swords of fire. And he will destroy all those who are ashamed of him. But all those who die and follow him, they will join that army. And they will celebrate when that army is victorious. And so Paul is bringing to Timothy's remembrance and to our remembrance. Don't be ashamed. What are you afraid of? Do you know who your God is? Paul says, for me, far from being afraid, I'm his prisoner. You think I'm in jail of my own accord? No. I went there willingly. I'm a prisoner because of it. Share in the suffering of Christ because it's worth it. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a direct connection to our last text. We talked about the faith of Timothy fanning into flame the faith given to Timothy. This gospel is from faith for faith. Don't be ashamed of it. You're alive because of it. You live because of it. I gave my freedom for it. My faith has teeth and so should yours. I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. So before we go further, I want you to consider Paul in his jail cell. I want you to consider it's not like here where it's air conditioning and three meals a day. Think about a dark, smelly, wet jail cell dug out of the ground with no interaction, no provision unless what people supply you, and sitting there in chains. And when people bring him, he said, don't forget my parchments, don't forget the pen and paper so I can write to the churches. In prison, he says, it's all worth it. I am suffering for Christ, and I praise the Lord that I am counted worthy to suffer for my Savior. So when we go home, we sit in our comfy air-conditioned houses and our TVs and our Netflix and our refrigerators. Is it worth suffering? Could we give it up if we had to? Is what Christ has done for us worth dying to ourselves? Is it worth being ridiculed by others? Is it worth being in prison or even worse being canceled by the culture? Do we trust in the power of God or are we driven by the approval of man? So I want you to meditate on this because we all have to examine ourselves in this. How valuable is the testimony of Jesus Christ to you? Because when we look at Paul, why would Paul suffer and go to jail? He tells us, for the gospel. How could Paul suffer and go to jail? By the power of God. It's verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's the foundation for the rest of this. Verse 9 begins a theological and Trinitarian masterpiece. Uh, so much so we're going to spend two weeks on it. But I want you to see the outline here. Verse 9, we get God the Father's purpose of salvation. And that is to give us the Son. In verse 10, it, the Son is the gospel manifested. And what he accomplishes and gives those who he sets his love on. In verses 11 through 13, the deposit that is entrusted to the saints is guarded by and worked out by God the Spirit. So, verse 9, like I said, um, we're going to get into more detail in verse 9 and 10 next week, so I am trying to resist uh, not to dig in now. 
Um, so I'm going to give you the 20,000-foot uh, view of verse 9 and, and 10, and um, you've got to come back next week for the rest. Verse 9. By the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So what gives confidence to timid men like Timothy? He is, remember last week we talked so much about how Paul commends Timothy. Timothy's faithful, but he struggles in a lot of areas. What does Paul want Timothy to know? What do we need to know? Know that the plan and outcome is in the source of our faith. It does not depend on you. It will not fall apart because of you. The question here is, how big is your God? Because, because the God that I serve, he's done it. This is my father's plan, and I trust him. I've staked my life on it. This plan from the father is amazing. This gracious plan of salvation to send his son to accomplish this plan. And the good news is the son did accomplish it. And the better news is it's not dependent on our effectiveness. It is accomplished and upheld by the son's effectiveness. Praise the Lord. And we know that this plan is beyond our efforts because our triune God decided it before time began. If your head hasn't exploded yet, it will next week. And what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit determined from eternity past has already been given to us in Christ. The greatest gift of God is the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ implanted in our hearts in faith. So Paul, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Give no reason to be ashamed. Verse 10. And which now... This purpose of grace and salvation has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This eternal plan, everything, that the triune God, the creator of all things, the eternal one puts together, comes to fruition in the sinless life the sacrificial death and complete bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our king is triumphant and out of his triumph over sin, over death, over the grave, there is a death to death. The reverse of the curse is sin no longer has dominion over us. There is a quality of life that goes on forever, that is communion with the true and living God. And so, Timothy, be encouraged. Saints, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Look what our God has done for you. And so what do we do with this? Other than say, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So when presented with this, there are two types of people in this room, and there are two types of people across the globe. When you hear this, 
You either resent God because you're like, hold on a second, who are you? You want me to serve you? You think my life should revolve around you? You didn't consult me before this, this plan. Or maybe there's the one who's like, well, why didn't you include everyone in this plan? You're not fair. I don't want any part of this. Or you praise God. Because without this plan, none of us would be saved. The problem is, we don't know how much grace we have truly been given. We don't know how wicked we are. We don't know how hopeless we are. We don't know how helpless we are. Even if you hear the gospel over and over and over again, you're the only one who knows, apart from the Lord, you're the only one who knows how, how wicked your, your heart is. And even you haven't seen the depths of wickedness in your own heart. But our God set his love on you through his son before the ages began, knowing how wicked your heart was. Not knowing that you would make the ultimate good choice and choose him and all that stuff. So I want to give you two pictures here. See if this kind of rings true. Picture an orphan who's grown up eating out of the garbage, who every day is hungry, is cold, the Oliver Twist type, who wonders how he's going to eat, who begs, borrows, and steals, and just wishes to die because his life is so miserable. No one loves him, and if he died, no one would notice. This orphan in the streets of some God-forsaken slum encounters a rich man walking down the street. And the rich man says, I choose you. I want you to come to my house. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you a share in my fortune. Do you think that orphan's going to say, no, not unless you take everyone else? What's he going to do? He's going to look to his new father and say, Daddy, I'll go wherever you take me. I'll do whatever you say if you get me out of this. How confident do you think he will be knowing what he was? Or do you think he'll say, you want me to give up all this? There's another orphan. This orphan kind of thinks highly of himself. This orphan thinks he's already rich. He thinks his garbage is caviar. He doesn't need anyone. He is free to do whatever his heart desires. He go to bed when he wants, wake up when he wants, the Huckleberry Finn type. And this one also encounters the rich man. And he begins to ask questions. Well, what's going to cost me? You mean you want me to clean up? You want me to come live with you? You want me to obey you? You want to put restrictions on my life? I've got everything I want. This is exactly where I need to be. You want me to leave all my friends here? No, thanks. Which one are you? I think when you hear that story, your heart's response will tell you all you need to know. Because if your heart still wants to hold on to your own autonomy, you want to be a law unto yourself, you don't want anyone telling you what to do, this Jesus idea, this, this God thing is nice, 
but I still need to do me. Or you're the one who knows I was eating garbage before the rich man found me. I had nothing until he found me. When he found me, I will praise him for the rest of my life because now I live in his house. I eat from his table. And he will feed me forever. And he will love me forever because he has loved me forever. Here, Paul is reminding Timothy who he is. You're adopted son of the God who owns everything. And that rich man, the first time he came on a donkey, not to show how rich he was, but to show that he was humble, that he was lowly, he came as man and he came to suffer. And to show that if you truly love me, you won't love me for what I will offer you, you will love me because of who I am. Because I came to lay down my life for you. And we, we also need that same reminder. When we read this, if brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to be encouraged. When you doubt, when you struggle, when, you are, when you're fearful, when you're ashamed, remind yourself of what God has done. Remind yourself of what you have been given in Christ because we need those reminders every day and every week. And we can't fathom how much we have in Christ, so that's why we're going to unpack it more next week. So, as we get to verse 11. So Paul says all this for, another purpose word, he told you all that, so he could say for which this gospel, this plan of the Father executed in the Son, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. This great gospel... I was called from it, to it, and for it. This is what I represent, and so do you. And so while none of us are apostle, preacher, and teacher, we share the same gospel as Paul. We're given the same truth as Paul. And every Christian, going back to verse 8, can give a testimony about our Lord. If you've been through our membership process, this is question number one. Give us your testimony. And I said this in our membership class. There's a fundamental understanding here. When we say testimony, don't tell me where you went to church and all the good things you did. Because then you'll tell me, then you're telling me where you put your trust. What, I, what we listen for as elders in your testimony is what has Christ done in my life and what is Christ doing in my life. That is why... We do testimonies in church on Sundays because every believer should be able to say, I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who I was. This is now who I am. And when we look at baptisms in a couple weeks, every person who was baptized, we will ask, why do you want to be baptized? And the answer should be some version of I am dead. I am hopeless apart from Christ, but in Christ I'm alive and I follow him. And I want to declare to my church body and to the world that I am a new creature in him. We can do that. Every one of you who has been made new in the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. It doesn't have to be complicated. 
I tell everybody, you need like a 30-second testimony. If you've got to get from the first floor to the fourth floor, tell people what Christ has done for you. Practice. You need a 10-minute version where you can kind of have it over dinner. And then if you want the uh, two-hour version where you give every play-by-play, make sure they have enough time for that. But we should be able to, in 30 seconds or two minutes or 10 minutes, get to what Christ has done for us. And if it does not mention Christ, it is not a testimony. It's you bragging. All right. So, verse 12. So he says, For which I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul brings up suffering twice because he's familiar with it. Paul has actually suffered. How can anyone be proud of that? How can anyone bring that up again and again? Um, I want to look at First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter six. We looked at this in intercessory prayer, and if you weren't there, you're missing out. Um, but be, those of you who are only here for service, because I love you, we'll read it again. Second um, Corinthians chapter six. Paul talks about all the things he's been through, but they pale in comparison to what he has in Christ. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse one. Working together with him, being Christ, the one who knew no sin, who and for us became the, for us died so that we can become the righteousness of God. Then we appeal to you, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Brothers and sisters, don't receive the grace of God in vain. What's he mean here? For he says, in favorable time I listen to you. In the day of salvation I help you. Behold, now is the favorable time. When does God listen to His people? Now. When is the favorable time? Five minutes from now, 10 minutes from now, and 10 days from now, and 10 years from now. When is the day of salvation? Now. If you are here and you are that second type of orphan, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to turn to him. Because whatever you think you lost, you gain more than you could ever imagine. And so here's what Paul says. I put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in, with, with our ministry. At the end of the day, I care that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. So I will remove any comfort from my life if it means you coming to saving faith in him. But as servants of God, we command ourselves in every way. Look what Paul has, has gone through. Great hardships, excuse me, um, yeah, by great endurance and affliction and hardships, and calamities, and beatings, and imprisonment, all these things he's been through. Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And how, does he, how do you do it, Paul? By purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by genuine love. Only the love of someone who has received so great a salvation can endure all that, and do it with kindness, and do it with patience. And he does it by truthful speech in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. When do you do it, Paul? In what, what instances? Sometimes. He says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as, as punished and yet not killed. Think about this. The worst thing the world can do to you is kill you, your body. Those people who were shot, 
they died but for a moment. If they are in Christ, they, they live forever. But the one who died hating others and despising the God that they serve, she will die a thousand deaths every day for the rest of eternity. Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can send your soul into eternal torment. Paul goes on. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is how a father through tears can say, I trust my baby into the arms of my Savior. As poor, yet making many rich. I love this. This is gospel ministry. This is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I've got nothing of my own, but I know the rich man. Let me take you to his house. Because I sleep out in the garage, and it's great. No, you're in the house. Um, As having nothing, yet possessing everything. I think that's our struggle, too. We like to think, well, what do I bring to the table? What do I have? What is it of my own? What can I take credit for? Nothing. But if you die to yourself, you have everything. And the world can't take that from you. Why? Because Jesus gave it to you. You think you're going to pull something out of Jesus' hand? Try. You think you're going to put something in Jesus' hand? Try. This is why Paul said, I'm not ashamed. I suffer, but I am not ashamed. Brothers and sisters, that is my prayer for myself. That is my prayer for you, that you not be ashamed. This is why every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Because when we forget the cross, that is the source of our shame. When we remember the cross, that is the source of our confidence. I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed. What's Paul saying here? He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. If God is for me, who can be against me? I believe in him. And so the question again is, how big is your God? Is the God you believe in big enough to save you for eternity and save you from your circumstances or save you through your circumstances? Is the God you serve big enough and good enough to die for? That's what Paul says. I'm writing from prison, Timothy. Timothy, what say you? And the more you have, the harder this question is to answer. Paul has nothing, and it's an easy answer. Because anything's better than this. But to us, the rich men and women, sometimes it feels like trying to squeeze ourselves through the, through the eye of a needle. But like he told the rich man, give it all away and follow me. If it has your heart, let it go. Because I'm a rich man. I own everything. And I will give you more than you could ever ask or ever imagine. 
We have this false perception, I think, that following Christ is the life of ease. We get whatever we want. Why is Paul not, a, not ashamed? Why is he not afraid? Because he knows in whom he believes. The quality of his, his life is not his activities, is not what he owns. The quality of his life is the eternal life he has been given in Christ. The quality of his life is communion with the true and living God. That is why Paul can sing praises in prison. Like we talked about on Wednesday, life in the wilderness is hard. We have been redeemed from our slavery to sin. We are on our way to our promised land. But every day it feels like, man, I, I need the cloud of fire because, or the pillar of fire because I don't know where to walk. I need the pillar of cloud because I get lost during the day. It's not easy, but it is worth it because there's a land flowing with milk and honey that our God has prepared for us. And so when we think about our testimonies, they should never shy away from the difficulty of the Christian life. Let's not set people up for failure. One thing I love about our, our body is we're not afraid to show weakness. We're not afraid to be honest about struggle. Because the worst thing you can do to a new, to a new Christian is put on the a fake Christian face, because we've all done it, and we all hate it. And you, and you think, well, man, something's wrong with me because everyone else is smiling and they've got it all together, but I'm struggling here. Don't be miserable and moping around all the time either. But yeah, we struggle, we suffer, we're in the wilderness. But Christ suffered first. We know him. And how did the world treat him? When we struggle with, with people pleasing, do we remember how they treated our Savior? Do we remember they killed him? A murderous mob killed our Savior. When the mob comes together, they usually have torches and pitchforks. And it usually doesn't turn out to who, good for whoever's on the other side. But so what? I know in whom I have believed. If we're honest, when we feel, when we feel ashamed or we fear, it's because we forget how great our God is. It's because we forget what our Savior has done for us. But if we remembered, we know like Paul knows. Not only does he know whom he believes, I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. This great deposit, this gospel message, it belongs to the living God. And so when he tells Paul in or when Paul tells Timothy in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He's not guarding it on his own. It is the Spirit of God who it belongs to, who while he is guarding Timothy is guarding the deposit. I didn't make the deposit, Paul's saying. I was entrusted this deposit. Like the flame, I didn't start it. But I am to gain interest with it. I am to fan it so it grows. God will guard what he gives. And so I am confident. God entrusted it to me. He will make sure it gets to its completed end. And how long will he guard it? Until that day. 
What's that day? That's the day of Christ's return. In short, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This gospel message, this testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, this pattern of sound words, this good deposit, it will continue until it's no longer needed. And it's only no longer needed when we see Jesus face to face. Brothers and sisters, you've been entrusted with that. And the Spirit guards it because the the Father decreed it and the Son accomplished it. That is quite the ministry. This is why Paul is so confident. This is why we should be confident. Why? Because Paul's ministry comes out of his theology. He knows who his God is. He knows what his God has done. Our ministry should not be disconnected from our theology, and our theology not disconnected from our ministry. This is why Paul says what he says in verse 13. Follow me in the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow me in this. Practice what you preach. Live out what is worthy of emulating. The pattern of sound words is a fascinating word. This is an architectural word. Uh, Think of it like like a a blueprint. This, This pattern is a sketch or a model, which an architect would use to build a house. And so Paul is saying, you have the blueprint. You have the model of the spiritual house. You have what you need. Don't worry how you're going to build the house. And don't try to get creative and build your own or come up with your own blueprint. You have the pattern of sound words. There's also um, a helpful term here, sound. Same word most often used when Jesus heals someone. When they go from crippled to well, same Greek word, they are now sound, they are now healed, they are now complete. This word is used, when you think about this, uh, this uh, pattern, these are solid, immovable bricks. This is a house built with healthy stones. This is a foundation. Follow this, Timothy, it's already laid out for you. And it is immovable. Don't build a house with straw. This is essentially what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn to 1 Corinthians and keep your finger there. We're going to look at another passage in a moment too. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When you think about following this, this pattern, Paul explains the pattern. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. This ministry that was given to Timothy, we are still building upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. That means every believer plays a part in this. Every believer builds on the same foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than which which is laid, which is Christ, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds a foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, same day here, when Jesus returns, that day, the day of judgment, the day of refining fire, it will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. 
Remember last week we talked about that same flame that sparks life in us burns off what is corrupted. That refining fire will one day refine all things and remove everything that is impure. That fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, even when we fail, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Everything that is not built on Christ will be destroyed. That is the only sure foundation. And so when Paul says here, follow me in this pattern of sound words, he's telling you a steady diet of healthy uh, gospel message and gospel application is to our soul what a healthy diet and exercise is to our bodies. You want to be healthy? Follow this sound pattern. Continue in this gospel message. Learn it, love it, apply it. And you will be fit and you will be active because you are building on what is solid. And so he says, when you follow this pattern of sound words, do it in faith and in love. In the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. In doctrine and in practice. Follow me in faithful doctrine and loving practice that comes out of Christ Jesus. We can't separate the two, and I can't say this often enough. We've already seen that there is the faith. There is a standard of faithful, or faithful doctrine, the person and work of Jesus Christ. We read it earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. But this is also, this is not just the gospel of doctrine and thought. This is a, this is a gospel of love. We've already seen the love of the Father in sending his son who loved us enough to lay down his life and sending the spirit who loves us enough to preserve us until the end. Our doctrine and our practice should agree. Our, the way we speak about God and the way we act in his name should not be divorced from one another. And so that love that we've been given, we should show to one another. Healthy doctrine and healthy living makes healthy Christians. Paul told us, uh, I won't go there, but Paul told us in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I follow, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is the life of a Christian. That is the life of, of, of discipleship. Find someone who, here's what discipleship looks like. Find someone who looks like Christ. When they look like Christ, imitate them. When they don't, don't. That's discipleship. Be around godly people with faithful doctrine and loving practice. And follow what's good. Eat the chicken and throw out the bones. Follow me as I'm following Christ. When I don't, don't follow me. And if I'm not, I want to know. So all that to say. Last verse here. When Paul gives the final command... By the Holy Spirit, this is how you do it, Paul, who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. By the time you get here, he doesn't ask Timothy to do something he can't do. He tells Timothy to do something that the Spirit is already doing. Think about that. He's building on the rest of everything, we, or the building on what we, we just talked about. This is a good deposit. The Father has decreed it. The Son has accomplished it. The Spirit is working it out in you. 
You just be faithful. You guard this good deposit. The Spirit guards us, and he guards what's been entrusted to us. This is how you can be confident, Timothy. This is how you can be confident, brothers and sisters, because of the work of God and for us on the cross and all of eternity and continuing to work through us. This good deposit, this gospel, this testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, this inestimable treasure, this what is beautiful and noble and praiseworthy, this gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the crown jewel, all puns intended. Guard it, Timothy, because nothing is of more value. And if you forget the value, read a couple verses back. So, in conclusion, what are you going to do with the deposit that has been given to you? Like, what are you going to do with the flame from last week? The priceless treasure of the Father's will, the Son's work, and the Spirit within us. After everything you heard this morning, is this something that should make you ashamed? Is this something that should make you fear others? Or is this something that should make you confident and bold and assured because of whom you have believed? Is it worth it to die to yourself? Suffer all the embarrassment and ridicule of the world and live with Christ forever? And so in the same way, are you building your house on sound words? The testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you were to examine what you were putting your, your hope in. Is it the theological or the spiritual equivalent of hay and stubble that passes away? Like that arrogant orphan from earlier on. Is your trust in and faith in the true and living God something that would withstand your daughter being murdered? Because that's the only thing that can give you hope in a moment like that. And when everything passes away, will your house stand? Because there's only one house that will stand at the end of the day. That is the one that has Christ as its foundation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for these reminders that I need, that we need. When we're fearful, when we're discouraged, when we're timid, when we're shy, when we're worried, bring to our hearts the reminder of the gospel. Help us lay our eyes on our loving Father who pulled us out of the slums. If only it were the slums who pulled us out of death because Christ, our brother, died for us. Lord, remind us of his sacrifice. Remind us of his life and our life in him. Remind us of how the Spirit guards us and empowers us, us to be ministers of this gospel. And remind anyone in this room this morning 
who thinks that their garbage is caviar, who thinks it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Lord, may the gospel pierce their heart. May you make them miserable in their sin and they cry out to you in mercy. And anyone who cries out to you in mercy, let us rejoice as the angels in heaven rejoice. May we look forward to the day that Christ returns when we no longer need the gospel because we will stand in the presence of the good news. And he will be our light forevermore. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.